All right. Um, before I get going, I'm just going to say uh, a brief little uh, announcement of sorts. Most of you know that I've never, I've never really talked about uh, the financial situation of of the church um, before, um, and the reason. I was told when I started by someone that uh, a good pastor has to give a tithing message every tw- twice a year uh, to motivate people to to give money, and and I I never liked even before I saw the Lord I didn't like that. I've, it's always bothered me how Christian leaders um, often try to extract money to support their visions or their agendas, and and usually they, that's done by either promises of blessing or uh, warnings of, of the dire consequences of of, um, of not tithing, and so um, before I say anything about our financial situation, I just wanted to say that um, this might come as a shock to some of you, but maybe it, it won't. Tithing ten percent, just like every other old covenant institution was a commandment that was put upon Israel by the law and it was fulfilled and realized in Christ's work on the cross. And it was fulfilled and realized in our relatedness to him as our high priest in the new covenant. And therefore, there is no such thing as a new covenant tithe obligation, a new covenant tithe requirement. In fact, the whole nature of the new covenant does not demand things from our flesh, but rather works the very nature and righteousness of Christ into your soul by the Spirit of God. And all of the offerings and all of the all of the tithes, um, all of the feasts, all of the sacrifices and incense and all of that, it all spoke of something eternal and spiritual and in our relatedness to Christ in his death and resurrection and and has come to its perfect fulfillment in, in, in him. And um, and so I'm not going to preach on that now. That's not what I'm talking about today. I I I'm just I'm just saddened probably as many of you are by the monetary manipulation that goes on in the body of Christ. I, I've often heard it said all of the law passed away except for tithing. Uh, I mean, literally, that's preached regularly from the pulpit, and um, and uh, and that's just that's just not not true. Tithing didn't pass away; it was fulfilled. And I'm not going to try to explain how I think that happened. I'm just saying that. To, to say that I, I hate I hate the idea that anyone would hear me say anything about our financial situation and think that I'm trying to manipulate you from God's perspective by any way, pulling or pushing. But with that said, supporting the body of Christ financially is obviously a necessity and a reality because we have bodies and because we have a building and because we pay bills and eat food and have natural needs. That's that's obvious. Paul talks about that in a number of places in the New, in the New Testament, and that's appropriate. Um, there's, there's not a religious mandate to give, but there are natural needs. Uh, and, and for that reason alone, I, I wanted to just say something this morning about uh, 
Market Street Fellowship's current financial situation. Uh, because people have told me, and, and this is probably true, that some people may want to help, uh, but don't always even know that there is a need. Um, anyway, uh, I, said, I said all that uh, because, as all of you know who are sitting here, we've lost a bunch of folks over the years. And, uh, and we've, gained, we've gained a bunch of folks too, but we've lost considerably more than we've gained. And, and, and I was thinking, the great, and there's not a whole lot of people here this morning at all because of the weather, but even when there is a, a, what we would consider a full house, uh, it, it, there's um, the great majority of the people that are here now weren't here when I started preaching the cross, when I began to see and preach the cross. Almost, there's very few uh, and I'm thankful for those who are, uh, very thankful. Um, and, and to some extent, I knew it would be that way, um, just, just because of the nature of the cross. But, but despite people leaving, I really am encouraged about our fellowship, and I've never felt more at peace and more happy about the people, that the folks that are here and what's going on and how the Lord is dealing with us as a body. And i and, um, just uh, so excited about the, the the heart to know the Lord that is represented here and and all of that, um, but uh, but things have been constantly changing uh, in in practical ways and in, in you know whatever since since I saw the Lord and began to preach what I believe is is the gospel of the cross and and with the most recent exodus of some folks from our fellowship. Um, we've we've kind of come to a place where it seems like it's kind of hard to tell because it varies week to week and month to month a little bit. But it kind of seems like we've come to a place where our uh, where our income no longer fully covers our expenses. Uh, and that's I have money saved up. We have a cushion. I've kind of was throwing some money away for a rainy day. Um, but uh, but it's it looks like we're starting to chip into that and and. Uh, and, and when I say expenses, I'm really just talking about bills, mortgage, payroll, some giving. Uh, we don't really spend a whole lot of money here on anything else, as maybe you noticed. Um, so I guess I'm just saying that. I'm just throwing that out there to say that if you know some people appreciate the ministry that comes from Market Street Fellowship, whether you're part of the local congregation here or one of our, our larger group of Internet listeners uh, and, and, uh, and, and would want to help support us, that would be great. I'm just making the need known. Um, it would be great, and, and it would help us uh, stay afloat, at least stay afloat in this facility. Uh, and uh, we've added a donate button to the uh, website on the on the uh, sidebar there, where you can easily uh, donate through PayPal uh, or write checks, obviously, to this address. Um, but uh, and all, of course, all donations are they're tax uh, deductible and all that, and you'll get a receipt at the end of the year. But um, it's kind of awkward for me to say all that, just because I don't. I hesitated. I even even right before I started saying the first word, I didn't know if I was going to mention anything, just because it feels the last thing I'd want is for people to think that uh, uh, that I'm speaking on behalf of God, trying to manipulate hearts that's that's not what's going on so anyway there it's over i probably will never say that again and uh do with that what you want
Um, I want to start. Uh, I want to start into Ephesians now, and uh, we're going to be back in chapter five. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. We're going to be uh, moving along here. Um, <clears throat> last last week, if you remember, we talked about love, um, love as Christ loves, uh, the nature of, of of the love of Christ, and how. How that nature of love, that very kind of love, the love that that is obedient to the death of one man so that he can share the fullness of another another life uh, that 's the kind of love that works in us that must work in his body and 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 today we 're going to pick up where we left off in verse three here and um, and and paul 's continuing here with with a list of uh, Adamic fruits that he expects to be passing away from the hearts and the lives of uh, of the believers, and uh, <clears throat> I know that I've said this many times, a bunch of times, and I'm kind of doing that on purpose. Uh, that the, these lists, of, these these lists of certain behaviors, are best understood to be the fruit of one of two men. And that's not just my idea. That's, that's what Paul says on many occasions, including if you skip down in Ephesians 5 here to verse 9, he says, that, he says again that these are the fruits, that things that we are to put on, they are the fruits of the Spirit. Uh, or some translations say the fruits of light. But either way, it's the fruits of Christ and the fruits of Adam. Uh, so, you know, on the one hand, you have... You have Love and joy and peace and patience and all these are the fruits of Christ or the fruits of the Spirit. And on the other hand, you have fornication and covetousness and idolatry and these are the fruits of the other man, Adam. And so when you read these descriptive lists, it's not a correct view. It's not appropriate to, to think to yourself, I need to do more of these and I need to do less of those. Or I need to discipline myself to act more like this and I need to discipline myself to act less like that. This isn't an act. That's not what he's. That's not what he's trying to describe here. Discipline is fine for what it is. It's fitting and it's appropriate. Uh, obviously, when flesh is moving and motivating our heart in, in all kinds of ways. But Paul is talking about the transformation of a soul here, where one entire kind and nature and man is crowded out by the by the revelation and the formation of another. And so there's always these two men in view. There's always the man who is being put off together with his deeds and his lusts, as he says in several places. And then there's the man who is being put on together with his fruits, the fruits of his spirit. And both of these experiences occur, as we have seen, by the renewing of the spirit of the mind. Where, where you come into an, an agreement with, accordance with, uh, congruency with, alignment with, the finished work of God through the cross of Christ. See, God has finished all things there. And now, knowing the truth through the revelation of Christ by the Spirit of God brings you into the experience, brings you into conformity to what God has finished. So let me go on here. I'm just going to read these next three verses. Uh, One, two, three. Uh, these next three verses I won't say a whole lot about because I've said a lot about these lists already. 
Ephesians 5.3, but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Neither filthiness nor foolish talking or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man, nor one who is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of God and of Christ and God. Um, the first part of this, again, I think it's just more of the, the list, again, of the, the Adamic fruits that are not uh, fitting for those who are uh, are born of, of God's Spirit. The last verse here, verse 5, can be a little confusing where he says there's no fornicator, unclean person, covetous man, idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of God. Uh, there's a few interpretations of what Paul's trying to say there. Um, what does he mean by by the phrase having no has no inheritance in the kingdom of God? Uh, what, and what does it mean here to be a, a fornicator or an idolater? Um, some Christians, I think, read a verse like this without a whole lot of understanding of the scriptures or a whole lot of understanding of the cross and use this kind of verse to condemn themselves or to condemn, more, more common, to condemn others. Um, I've heard people say, you know, well, I'm a Christian, but I've done a couple of the things on that list, so uh, does that mean that I'm not going to heaven? And, um, well, that's not even a right view of heaven to begin with, but nor is it, in my opinion, really related to what Paul's talking about there. Um, for starters, I think that Paul, when Paul said what he said here in, in uh, <clears throat> what is it, verse 5, I think he had the kingdom, I think he uh, was drawing from the kingdom of the old covenant, Israel, as the shadow of the, of the new covenant kingdom of God in Christ when he makes this remark. Because in the old covenant, anybody who was found to be an idolater or a fornicator or unclean was cut off from God's kingdom in the earth. God's kingdom in Israel, you see. <clears throat> if you remember God's covenant with that people, uh, you know, if you were found to be one of those, in one of those situations, in one case you were stoned. In another case, you were uh, just cut off from the camp and made to, you know, go away, cast out from my people Israel. In another instance, you were made to dwell outside the camp uh, for a week, seven days or whatever until you became clean and then you were allowed to come back in. But in all of these instances, uh, you, you see that uh, there were things that separated God's people from God's kingdom. And, and there were things that disqualified them, either temporarily or permanently, from their inheritance. You see, that's what that's what's going on. They are being separated from their inheritance in the in the natural kingdom, in the in the uh, natural kingdom of Israel. And I and so I think that that's probably the type and shadow that Paul is working with here, that Paul has in mind. I don't um, I don't think the point here is for Paul to make a list of who's who is and who's not going to heaven. Going to heaven. Uh, but rather who is experiencing and partaking of their inheritance in God's kingdom. In other words, those who choose to hold on to the Adamic man and his deeds. 
to that exact measure, they are also choosing to forfeit their inheritance in the kingdom of God. That's what I think he's saying. And I think that's kind of true on every level. For instance, those who are unbelievers are obviously holding on to the Adamic man completely. And therefore, to the fullest extent, they are forfeiting God's offer of the kingdom. Uh, those who aren't born again will know nothing of that kingdom. Those who live their entire natural life, never looking beyond their own soul, beyond the, the, the Adamic uh, nature and kind that they were born into, and never, never look to uh, an exodus through the cross, they, they know nothing of that kingdom. But I think it also holds true in a, to, to a measure for those of us who are even born of God's Spirit. We're, we're saved, for sure, but by holding on to that man with his lusts or with his deeds or whatever, we are, to whatever degree, we are forfeiting our experience and our participation of God's kingdom as it was meant to be our inheritance. Can you understand what I'm saying? For Christians, it's not about eternal separation from God, but it, but it does amount to us falling short of the high calling of God in Christ. It does, it does, we can greatly limit our experience of our inheritance, the inheritance of the kingdom of God. If you think about the people uh, of Israel in the time of the judges, or if you think about King Saul as another example, what was God's problem with his people in those times? Well, it wasn't that they weren't in the land. That, that, that was settled. They were in the land. But to put it very simply, they would not allow the kingdom of God to fully take the land. They held on to things. They held on to themselves in a number of ways. They held on to what they thought was good. They, in a number of different ways, they forfeited their inheritance. It was always their own inheritance they were forfeiting. You understand? And then think about King David. What was different about King David? Why was he called a man after God's own heart? What, what, why, why was that? Well, I think largely it was because he was a man that executed God's judgment on that land. Starting with the uncircumcised Goliath, David expanded the kingdom of Israel to its full glory so that there was a reign of, of full peace and wisdom in the land. You understand? My point is that Israel forfeited the fullness of their inheritance in the Old Covenant even when they were already in the land. And I think that many of us do the same thing. I think we don't allow him to take this as far as it goes. I think we, by holding on to ourselves, by holding on to the man who is covetousness and idolatry and fornication, by, by giving that man place in our soul, in the darkness of our, of our heart, we are, we are like King Saul. We are not allowing him to fully put away what he has judged dead, you see? And when we do this, we're surrendering something of our inheritance in God's kingdom. And so to kind of summarize that, that verse there, verse 5, I think, that <clears throat> I think that verse could be seen in a couple different ways. I think it could be seen speaking of one who is totally cut off from God and his, his kingdom by, by uh, you know, and I mean it eternally, by never accepting God's judgment of the Adamic man in any way. 
Or I suppose that that verse could be speaking of the way that we as Christians, though we are born again, we forfeit the greatness of our salvation. We fall short of the high calling of God in Christ. We, we forfeit our inheritance by holding on to that man in our hearts. We hold to our own versions of idolatry and uncleanness and covetousness. We hold tightly to a man who has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. So, um, we'll move on here to verse 6 and 7. I'll spend the rest of the time on these two verses. Paul continues here by warning the Ephesians not to be deceived by those who come to them speaking what he calls empty words. Empty words. Let me just read verses 6 and, six and 7. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. <clears throat> Let no one deceive you with empty words. What is an empty word? What makes a word empty or full? Um, I want to say that it is more than just whether or not the words are true or false. Words can be true and still empty. It might be easier to explain an empty word by first saying something about a full word. A word is full when that word is merely a container for something real and substantial that we experience in Christ. A word is full, it's full of meaning when the reality, when the substance, the experience has defined the word. When the substance has defined the word, uh, it is full. A word is empty when the reality, the substance, or the experience of the word is left up to your imagination. Let me try to explain. One of the things that, uh, that is common for, for Christians, whether they realize what's going on or not, is to be reading uh, maybe a familiar passage of Scripture and all of a sudden something, seem, something just seems altogether new and, and, uh, and different. It, it just it grabs you. Sometimes we say it's like it jumped off the page of the Bible, you know? Uh, well, why does that happen? What is that all about? Why didn't it happen the last time we read the same words? The answer lies in the fact that though we can read God's words all day long, we cannot truly hear them or know them until the substance of which they speak is shown to us by the Spirit of God. And suddenly they're filled up with meaning. You know, Then those words start to become full of reality because... The substance has now defined the word. And then, for instance, the reality of grace or life or love shows you what the word has always meant. And, of course, in the process, crowds out from you what the word has never meant. Remember a while back, it was about a year ago, I think exactly, I talked about words, words being like a package. Somebody can hand you a box that is completely filled or it's entirely empty. But either way, the box is exactly the same. 
the box is just a transportation or a communication of something else inside. And words are, are the exact same way. They're the carriers or the vehicles of something real. The words of a, of, a, of a human convey from my mouth to your ear something of my view or my plans or my sentiments or my ideas. But in, 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 to, to really know a person, to really know a human, the soul has to encounter what is behind the words. Well, the words of God are like that too. The words of God, the words of God are packages. They're packages that convey the, the world of spirit and truth as it is in Christ. But to genuinely know God in any real way, the soul has to experience and come to abide in and come to live by the substance that is behind those words. But in either case, whether you're talking about a human or you're talking about God, words themselves have no inherent reality. They're just containers. They're just packages. And if you remember the analogy I used a year ago, I, I asked... I ask you to imagine that somebody handed you a, a box with the word disgusting on it. You remember that? It, someone wrote the word disgusting across the top of a box. And, and you, you get the box and you know it's not too bad. That's, it's, just, it's just the word disgusting on a box. There's nothing disgusting about the word disgusting. There's nothing disgusting about the box. You know, and, and, and you never know. People's opinions are different about things. And you, you kind of you hold the box a little bit, shake it around, and... Start, you start wondering, maybe there's something kind of neat inside. Maybe there's something valuable in there. As long as it's just a word on a box, your imagination defines the contents. You understand? It could be anything at all until you see it. So at last, curiosity gets the best of you, and you cut open the box, and you find a bucket of something absolutely revolting. It's so disgusting. It turns your stomach and you throw it away and you run the opposite direction. And now the contents have defined the word for you. You see, the contents have defined the word. Well, seeing the substance has now cast down any imagination and has replaced it with the truth. And the next time you encounter a similar box with the word disgusting on it, it's going to be far more than a word to you. The word has been defined and filled with meaning through your experience of the substance. It's no longer an empty word. Well, all words are like that. And scripture, scripture is even more like that because the words in Scripture... Are gigantic boxes. I mean, they, they, they can be filled with so much reality. The Bible is a collection of packages that cannot be known until you're confronted with the contents. That's why I'm always talking about the revealing of Christ, because that's where the box gets opened. Suppose now that somebody hands you a package and it says glory on it. The word glory. Well, that's a kind of a cool word, or, or maybe it's a scary word, or maybe it's a boring word, or maybe you're positive you've known what that word means since you were seven years old. As long as it's a word on a box, it remains whatever you happen to think. It's an empty word. All words and spiritual concepts are exactly that way until you're confronted with their definition 
in the appearing of Jesus Christ. He is what fills every box, every spiritual box, that is. And our relationship is not with words. Our relationship is with the Lord who is defined by words. And maybe you've never thought about this, but I was thinking about it yesterday. I was thinking that whether we'd like to admit it, whether we've ever thought about it like, like this or not, people naturally prefer relating to God in the security of words and concepts. Remember the Israelites. They probably all would have told you, if you would have asked them, that they wanted to be like Moses and speak to God face to face. But when God appeared in his glory on the mountain, in the presence of the entire congregation, they all were terrified and screamed to Moses to go up to the mountain, get God's words, and bring them back down. Just tell us his words. Don't make us face the substance again. And we're all like that. Why are we all like that? We're all like that because words can be learned with the mind, categorized and controlled. So that learning Christ, just like learning math, feels systematic, predictable, and therefore safe. And that way we get to decide what it is that we believe and what it means and how it applies or doesn't apply to our life. We actually prefer empty words because then we get to fill them. And so we get to decide which Christian books are interesting and which denomination best fits our personality and which theological camp best corresponds to our views. As long as scripture is largely an unopened package, we will interpret and manipulate the words to align with our invested interests, to align with our felt needs, Align with our man-centered presuppositions. And in this way, Paul says, we can be ever learning words and never coming to a knowledge of the substance, never coming to a knowledge of the truth. So Paul's warning believers here in, in, in Ephesus about the danger of empty words. The danger with words is that we can amass an enormous collection of packages and unknowingly forbid the Lord to open a single one. For Christians, the question is not whether we believe in the inspiration and authority of the written word of God. Almost every Christian that, you know, that's really a Christian has a very high view of those words, a very a high view of the infallibility or inerrancy of those words. The question is always and forever the willingness of a heart to see the one inside the package. Here's the question. Will you and I allow the Lord to open up his words and confront us with the substance? Everyone, now, see, everyone's quick to say yes. Everyone, every believer is, is quick to, to insist that they will, but curiosity is not the same thing as willingness to know. Curiosity, is, is ne curiosity will never open a box. It's not enough to know the Lord. Asking questions is not the same thing as seeking truth. Truth comes at a, at a cost. And, and if you and I are going to learn Christ, we are going to confront the cross 
And every time one of those box, boxes open, you are going to have to part with something of yourself. Every box will be opened at the expense of something that you thought, something that you wanted, something that you mistakenly called truth, something that you mistakenly called life. That's how this thing works. And the hungry heart eventually learns that to truly gain the excellency of the knowledge of Christ, one must come to want Him more than our own words, more than our own definitions, more than our own understanding, more than our own life. That's what Jesus says. And that's why, without question, the most significant and helpful counsel I know how to give a Christian is always the admonition that we do not know what we think we know. I say that all the time. Regardless of whatever we've read or memorized or taught or thought or how long we've thought it or how long we've known it, we do not know anything that we are not currently seeing through the Spirit-given revealing of Jesus Christ. And that perpetual realization and that foundation is the only way to guard ourselves against a lifetime of busy Christianity that is built upon imaginations and empty words. God would like to take all of your spiritual words and concepts and ideas and fill them with the appearing of himself. That's a fact. God wants to confront you with the substance and cause the soul's encounter with Christ to become the reality and the fullness of every single spiritual word. And that sounds like a great idea, but it's not that easy. I was having lunch with uh, somebody this week and they said, they said, now I understand. I could see light, light bulbs going off and, and, and I and he said, now I understand why most people walk away from this gospel. And he, was, he was realizing what I'm now trying to describe. He was realizing that one by one, God confronts the packages of our empty words. Packages that we have filled with our own ideas, our own understanding, our own lives. He confronts them one by one with the truth and he demands, the truth demands it. The truth demands that he become the reality of every word and every concept that we've ever read in the Bible. The truth demands that in every area we lose ideas in exchange for him. I remember the, uh, the Lord dealing with Miss, uh, me about this a, a few years back. I, uh, several years ago, I remember, <clears throat> I remember thinking for a, for a time, I remember thinking that sooner or later I would come to the end of where I, would, where I had been wrong and, and I would be left with those things where I had been right. Sounds logical. But I was very mistaken. And I even preached... I even preached that a few times, and some of you uh, may have been there when I did several years ago, and if you, if you were, you may remember this analogy I used, and it was, a, it was a bad analogy, so strike it from your heart if you haven't already. Um, it was at a time when I was realizing, and this part was true, this part was real, I was realizing that my foundation, my foundational understanding of Christianity, my foundational understanding of the gospel was completely bogus. And um, I was realizing that everything I had done and learned 
as a Christian was built on this foundation of man. It was my, it was my works for Jesus. It was my zeal for God. It was zeal without knowledge. It was zeal without Christ. And, and, and that, again, that much was true, but then I imagined that God could, here's the analogy I gave, that God could jack up the house that I had built and wipe out the foundation and rebuild it and then set my house back down on top of the foundation. Does anyone remember when I... Darn, I was hoping no one would. <laughs> well, I used to think that, um, that much or at least some of what I had learned as a Christian or what I did as a Christian or taught or prayed or thought as a Christian could be salvaged if we're only on the right foundation. But that, that was a deadly imagination. And I am so glad the Lord cast it down from my heart. This house is nothing except the increase of the foundation. And nothing of spiritual value is known or done or learned unless Christ himself is the life and source and substance of it. You don't have a house of your own that he can use. You don't have a value that he's trying to support or correct or steer. He fills you with value and that value is him. I'm saying that because you'll never get to the bottom of the words and ideas and concepts that he must redefine through an encounter with his light. You never will. You'll never find your last empty word. You'll never find a package that doesn't need to be defined by the contents. All of your words are empty words. You don't know how to fill a word until he appears as the fullness of it. And friends, what I'm saying is that never ends. And I may be losing some of you in saying this, but then again, maybe I'm not. Sooner or later, the substance will demand all of your words. The substance will demand everything and you will continually and forever have to make a choice. You'll have to choose between holding on to your package that you get to define and control or giving it back to him to define in his appearing. And don't, don't tell me that you've already made up your mind. You can't say that. It's a, it's a foolish thing to say because you can't do that. You can't make up your mind before your heart confronts your next choice. And then there's always the next one. And then there's always the next one. And it's a continual ongoing death to yourself through the revealing of him who is life. You see, it's ongoing. You can't just decide today. Don't, don't fool yourself into thinking you can decide today that it's, I'm letting go. You don't even know what that means. You may know what it means about the one thing that God has his finger on in your heart right now. But then there's tomorrow. Then there's another box and another. And there's plenty of places to say no or to say yes. So anyway, words, words are a great thing because they can, 
Words can hand you a package. They can give you a package that Christ can open in His appearing. And that's, that's why I, you know, for that reason I love words. For that reason I believe Paul prayed that God would give him utterance, that he might be able to speak the mystery of the gospel as he ought. For that reason I read the Bible all the time. I, I read the words. Because sometimes when I'm reading the words, God opens a package or two. But there's also an inherent danger in words. The danger of words is that they're just words. And many have been deceived into believing that they have come to know very much when all that they have done is amassed an amazing library of empty packages. Paul warns the church about the deceptiveness of empty packages. And specifically here, I think he's talking about the Judaizers. The Jews, <clears throat> Judaizers, that's a word that they use to refer to the Jews who professed to believe in Christ. They were, they were the religious Christians of the day. I mean, literally, they were. They were the, they were the Jews who had, who had quote-unquote received Christ, but they were, um, they were teaching the church to continue to be circumcised and to keep the law and to keep the feasts and to, and to obey the Sabbath. And, 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 you know, they were the ones who were attempting to bring the elements of the shadow into the substance and make it relevant, make it relevant apart from Christ who was the, the substance itself. These are the, the uh, proponents of, of Christian religion in that day. And, and in many ways, they are exactly like the proponents of Christian religion in our day. Christian religion is an oxymoron. I hope you know that. When I use that term, I'm not talking about true Christianity. I'm talking about, um, I'm talking about religion, which is the opposite of Christianity. You understand what I'm saying? Okay. Um, <clears throat> These, these Judaizers uh, were preaching empty words. They were preaching words that had not been filled up with Christ as their substance. Specifically, these people were preaching some of the old covenant words like Sabbath and circumcision that Christ had fulfilled in himself. You see, Christ had fulfilled... What do I mean by that? See, Sabbath was just a word. It was a natural word. A nat it corresponded to a natural day with natural rest from six days of natural work. But see, Christ appeared as the substance of the Sabbath. And they didn't see it. Christ appeared as the substance of the Sabbath. Christ appeared as the true rest of God. He appeared as the true day where man's works, all of man's works, cease. He appeared as the substance of the, 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 the actual end of those six days, the six-day creation, the creation that God made in six days. He appeared as God's rest, the end of those days, the end of that creation for those who would come. You see, so Christ was the substance, but the Judaizers were preaching empty words. They were preaching a word that they didn't see the substance of. And they were, still, they were still preaching the Sabbath as a concept that people had to observe in the flesh and not a reality that Christ had accomplished in the Spirit. And Christians are still doing that today about the Sabbath, incidentally. But it's the same with circumcision. Circumcision was a spiritual word that they were familiar with. And it had to do with a natural cutting off of natural flesh from a natural man. It had to do with that natural man coming into a covenant that dealt with natural things like sacrifices and offerings and laws. And, and then Christ appeared. 
Christ appeared as the substance of that word. You see, he appeared as the, as the, as the definition of circumcision in himself. He became the true cutting off of flesh. Removal of flesh from a spiritual man, one new man, not Jew or Gentile, but Christ all and in all. He became the blood of that circumcision that brought a people into an everlasting covenant. But see, many of these religious Christians were still teaching circumcision as a word, as a doctrine, to be obeyed in the natural realm. So in this specific case, Paul is dealing with Judaizers preaching empty words and deceiving the church. And that's why he calls them, see, I think that's why he calls them here in this verse, um, verse, what is it? Uh, it's the last verse, I think, where he calls them sons of disobedience. Wherever it is, I can't find it. Yeah, verse 6. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Well, these, he calls them sons of disobedience, in my opinion, because these are the natural sons of Abraham. These are the natural sons of Israel, the natural sons of God. These are the sons who Jesus talked about in so many of his parables, the sons that refused to do the Father's bidding. There were two sons. One said, I will not do it, or one said, I will do the will of God, but he didn't, and the other said, I will not do the will of God, but he did. You know, and Here's the ones that said they were doing the will of God, but they did not. These are the, those sons, the sons of disobedience, the ones that refused to come to the wedding feast, though they were invited. They were invited first. These are the ones that wouldn't give the fruit of the vineyard to the, to the owner, so it was taken away and given to those who would bear the fruit of it. These are the, 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 the ones that grew up for a time next to the sons of obedience and until they were eventually separated and destroyed. And I believe that the wrath that uh, Paul is speaking about here specifically, the wrath that's coming on the sons of disobedience, that, that wrath is talking about uh, the wrath that Jesus spoke of that came on Israel and Jerusalem at the end of that generation. Jesus says this over and over and over again. Uh, I'm sure you remember some of his warnings to that generation. He says that... Uh, that uh, they would be destroyed because they did not realize the, the, the day of, of his visitation. How long I've, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how long I've wanted to gather you up like a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not have it. Therefore, your house will be left to you desolate. And, and he goes on to talk about their, their rejection of him and, and their subsequent um, absolute destruction. He talks about an army surrounding them, and in fact that happened, and, and building a, a siege against them. And, and, and he talked about their house being left desolate, and not one stone of the temple would be left standing upon another. And, and, and don't weep for me, weep for yourselves. Um, and on and on he goes, and then he says these things will happen to this generation. And, um, anyway, the sons of the old covenant would not... In general, though, though some did, though many did, but, but in general, the sons of the old covenant would not become the sons of the new. And therefore, their house was left to them desolate. Their cities, their temple, their entire nation was destroyed. Maybe you don't know the history there. The whole, the whole nation, the whole, all the cities, Jerusalem, everything destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. 
The only survivors were the Christians who heeded the words of Jesus when you see the armies beginning to surround Jerusalem, flee to the mountains, hide in the hills of Judea, which they did, and they survived the, the, uh, the Romans' attack. But um, the Jews were decimated, and some were... The stories are, are pretty intense, but um, the 17 to 25-year-olds were taken captive to be brought back to the... Uh, to the Colosseum where they were fighting with gladiators and lions and saber-toothed chickens or whatever else was in the in the uh, Colosseum at that time. Um, but, but for a time, my point is, for a time there were two groups claiming to be sons of God. There were two groups in one household. Paul talks about this in Galatians 4 where there were the Isaacs and there were the Ishmaels in, in one house of the father Abraham, both claiming to be the true sons of God. And for a time, the sons of the flesh persecuted the sons of the spirit, but eventually God brought wrath upon the sons of disobedience, the sons of the flesh, and exonerated and exalted the, the sons of, of, his, uh, of his spirit, the sons of promise. So I say all that just to say, you know, it's a long story and I'm not going to get into a lot of details with that, but I mention it just because it is precisely these natural sons of Abraham that were troubling the church with empty words. And it's these sons of, of Abraham uh, that Paul is saying, uh, have no part with them because wrath is coming upon them. Separate yourself from them because wrath is coming upon them. And Paul's admonishing the, the true sons of Abraham by faith to... to, to, to how does he say it? Not be partakers with them or have nothing to do with them for their end is destruction and they've been appointed to wrath because they've refused the day of the Lord. So we'll stop with that. It just, the main point in all of that little bit of history there is just to give you the context for the last little phrase that he says there about the sons of, the sons of disobedience and the wrath. But the important thing is that these are the ones who through religion, through empty words, are trying to... Um, to deceive the ones who have begun to see him who is the substance of those words. Amen. Let's pray.